There are lots of words that you could use to describe me, whether it be for the different roles in my life, like pastor, father, husband, or to describe different attributes of my character, friendly, handsome, obnoxious. One word that those who know me best and longest say my parents might use is delusional. The first time I realized I might be a bit delusional was in college. I had a good friend who was a scholarship athlete on the softball team at UVA, a Division I program, four-year starter. And from time to time, she and I would banter back and forth because I believed, I was convinced that I could beat her at Home Run Derby. I believed that if we went out to a Little League field and given the same number of pitches, I could hit more home runs than she could. And we we went back and forth on this for years. I was convinced. You couldn't tell me otherwise. Until one day, my senior year, we actually went out to a little league field with a bucket of baseballs, and we played a little home run derby. And after she had hit her 83rd home run compared to my four, I was finally willing to admit defeat. Now that I've become a parent, I can, I'm able to see and admit even more ways that I have been delusional in my life. For instance, growing up, I thought I was the smartest person in my house. I thought I was incredibly clever and really running the show and was able to get away with a ton of stuff that my parents had no idea about. Then I had a child. And as I see Patrick walk around the house, all of two years old, thinking that he is the smartest person in the house... Well, it shed a whole new light on the delusion of my teenage years. Parents, can I get an amen? Sometimes I, 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 it, it's, it's sad to admit, but sometimes I still think that I'm the smartest person in my house. Any brave husbands want to give an amen to that? Let me be perfectly clear, I am, that too is a delusion. Any wives want to give me an amen on that? Here's the craziest part, though. Had my friend and I never played home run derby, I would have gone to my grave forever convinced that I could beat her. Me, who had a great run at Little League Baseball like 20 years ago. Had I never had a child, I would still be convinced that teenage me was much smarter and cleverer than my parents. I could never have come to these conclusions on my own but needed my world to be changed and transformed to really understand the truth. Now, all of this is somewhat silly, I will admit, but I want to make a larger point. Last week, we celebrated Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we talked about the world-altering, life-changing implications that has for us. We talked about how the disciples woke up, believing they lived in a certain world with certain rules, but were shocked, surprised, and transformed when they discovered they lived in a different world. Jesus failed, delusion. Death reigns supreme, delusion. Evil and sin have the final word, delusion. Instead, the truth is that Jesus has won the victory. The God of life reigns supreme, and love, faith, and hope have the final word. And we talked about how because of this experience, Because of this Easter experience, the disciples were transformed and lived completely different lives. They became new people. They became Easter people. 
Now, all of this is preamble to finally get to the point, but here it is. If you are here today, the Sunday after Easter, traditionally called Low Sunday, it is because you too have had that Easter experience. You have had an experience with the risen Christ, the living God, and have come to realize that the world you thought you lived in was not the world that is. But today we need to go a step further. You see, it's not enough to have an experience. It's not enough to acknowledge that we live in a different world or a different universe. It's not enough to come to church the Sunday after Easter. It's not enough to have faith. You have to have a contagious faith, which is what we're going to spend the next six weeks talking about. You see, the disciples, having had their experience with the risen Christ, were transformed. And they became the type of people that had the, t- they had the type of faith that others followed and emulated. They spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, started the church, and brought hundreds, thousands, millions to Christ. And that is precisely the type of faith that we, Christ's followers today, are called to have. But what does it mean to have a contagious faith? I'm so glad you asked. To answer that, I want to look at two stories in the Gospels. The first is from very early in Jesus' ministry, found in the second chapter of Mark's Gospel. It'll be displayed on the screen behind me. It's printed in your lifeline. And if you have your Bibles, it's Mark chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, we're giving them away for free outside in the cafeteria. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the man that was lying on it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now there are three things I don't want us to miss in this story. The first is that it occurs at the beginning of Mark's gospel, but it's not the first healing miracle in Mark's gospel. Instead, it comes at the end of a series of healing stories. The first healing story occurs when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. A man with an unclean spirit comes to him while he's teaching, and Jesus casts out a demon. Then there are countless other healings, and then this story. This is the last healing story that Mark tells for a while, And I believe it's the one he wants to leave hanging in your mind. And that's for a reason. The reason being the second thing that I don't want us to miss. I don't want us to miss the connection between faith, spiritual transformation, 
and physical transformation. In the first one and a half chapters of Mark, if the first one and a half chapters of Mark are a healing sandwich, the first healing miracle occurs when Jesus is teaching with authority, and in the last one, Jesus forgives a man's sins before physically healing his ailment. Now, the third thing I don't want us to miss that serves as a bit of foreshadowing is that Jesus forgives the man's sins after seeing the faith of his friends. I'm going to leave that hanging in the air as a teaser. Now I want us to turn to a story from Luke's gospel. This comes to us from Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. I know some of you know it. Don't make me sing alone. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I know I've said this before, but in ancient times, tax collectors were assessed an amount that they needed to pay on up the chain. However, that amount did not cover their salary. But they were allowed to charge their constituents whatever they wanted to charge. So when we hear about this tax collector named Zacchaeus, who was very wealthy, what Luke is saying is that he was cheating his, cons- cheating his constituents which is a harder phrase to say than I originally thought. One thing this tells us about Zacchaeus is that he valued money and wealth over relationships with the people in his community. Jesus comes into town offering relationship and companionship, and immediately something happens within Zacchaeus. For some reason, known only to God and to Zacchaeus, he becomes a different person. He promises to give half of his possessions to the poor and to give quadruple restitution to those he's cheated. The point here is that Zacchaeus has, in the blink of an eye, gone from someone who valued wealth over relationships to someone who values relationships over wealth, at which point Jesus announces that salvation has come to Zacchaeus. Now, why have I told you these stories? Because there is a connection between faith spiritual transformation, and physical transformation. Now, when I say physical transformation, I don't exclusively mean the healing of physical ailments. What I mean is that spiritual transformation that is brought about as a result of faith calls for transformation in how we live our lives today in the here and now. The paralyzed man's sins were forgiven and he was able to walk. That's the extraordinary case. For Zacchaeus, salvation came to him, and he stopped cheating his neighbors and offered full restitution. In each case, Jesus saved these men, and we can name something 
some way in the here and now that Jesus has saved them. We have a saving, transforming faith. We are saved. We have been saved. But I don't just mean that in the eternal sense. Because Jesus didn't just save the paralyzed man or Zacchaeus in the eternal sense. Jesus saved them from something in the here and now, just as Jesus saves us from something in the here and now. What has Jesus saved you from? Having a contagious faith is knowing the difference, the real practical difference that Jesus has made in your life. And just so you don't think that this is all lip service, let me tell you about what Jesus is trying to save me from at this point in my life. I am a deeply insecure person, which is something you might not know about me, and you might not know it because I work incredibly hard to not let it show. I overcompensate. I act confident, even cocky. But it's not because I am confident or cocky or believe in my own abilities. It's because I'm terrified that people will realize how insecure I am. And the result of that is that I hurt others before they can hurt me. I leave people before they can leave me. Now, this sermon is not meant to be a public therapy session for me, but I tell you that because I know that Jesus is trying to save me from these insecurities. Jesus is trying to tell me that it's okay to have inabilities, that it's okay to try and fail. It's okay to be overwhelmed in out of my depth because my weaknesses are perfected in his strengths. Because when I admit that I can't do it, I cling to his cross and create a space for God to work. Jesus is saving me from hurting rather than being hurt and leaving rather than being left because Jesus will never hurt or leave me and it is his love that is the ground on which I stand. And I know that Jesus will have victory over my inner demons and I know that when he does, I will be a better person because of it. What has Jesus saved you from? What is Jesus saving you from? If you want a contagious faith, you have to know this. Because if you don't think that Jesus makes a difference in your life right here today, you'll never be able to make Jesus relevant to others. What has Jesus saved you from? What concrete thing? What is Jesus saving you from? What concrete thing? That is your homework this week if you want to have a contagious faith. That was both for dramatic pause and because I was thirsty. But that last sentence raises a good question. Do we want to have a contagious faith? Why might we want to have a contagious faith? To answer that question, I want to go back to the point I left hanging in the air as a teaser. Remember when Jesus healed the paralyzed man? The reason that he did so was because of the the faith and dedication of his friends. Jesus forgave the man's sins and healed his paralysis because of the lengths his friends went to to bring him to Jesus. They climbed up on top of a roof, hoisted their friend onto the roof, removed sections of the roof, and lowered him down to the feet of Jesus. And it was that act that served as the basis for what Jesus does for this man. Why do we want to have a contagious faith? Because I believe for everyone in here, there is someone in our lives that we desperately want to bring to Jesus. You see, here's the thing. We are people of faith. But the opposite of faith isn't doubt. 
It's certainty. As people of faith, we don't have complete object certainty that the claims we make are true. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called faith. So there might be, always be doubts about claims of eternal salvation, the existence of God, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why we need stories about what Jesus does for us in the here and now to strengthen our faith and give life to the faith we want to see in others. But friends, let's think about this for a moment. What if we, as people of faith, as people of the Christian faith, are right about everything? What if we're right? What if what we believe about God and Jesus Christ, eternal salvation and heaven, is 100% correct? If that is the case, if we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that our hope is true, there is someone in your life that you would desperately want to bring to Jesus. You would stop at nothing. You'd never give up. Because if we're right, bringing that person to Jesus could literally mean everything. Friends, if we have a saving faith, if we believe that we have been saved by God's grace eternally and from something, some concrete thing in the here and now, that gets into your hearts and it changes you. And when you see your friends or your family or your neighbors or your coworkers who do not have this faith, who do not have this grace, and who are struggling with something that you know that Jesus wants to save them from, you can't leave that person where they are. And that right there, in that moment, is when you know you want to have a contagious faith. You want to be the kind of person that is a part of bringing someone to Jesus. Because if we're right, if we Christians have it right, bringing that person to Jesus is the single most important thing that could happen in that person's life. I want to have a contagious faith. I want to have a contagious faith in my heart so that my heart aches and longs to be about bringing people to Jesus. I hope that at this point, you do too. In what we'll be t- it's what we'll be talking about for the next few weeks. But step one is knowing specifically and concretely what it is that Jesus has saved you from and is saving you from. Ponder that this week. And come back next week as we talk about what contagious faith looks like in relationships. Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, you are our Savior. You have saved us from captivity to sin and death. You have saved us from a life spent outside your love and grace. You have saved us from an eternity not spent with you. But you are also saving us now from the habits, from the junk, from the bad choices that we continue to make. You are saving us from old hurts and old wounds. You are saving us from the effects that living in this hurting world can have on us. Open our eyes to what you are doing in our lives. Open our hearts to work with you. And help us be bold to declare to our friends and to our family that we are being saved, that we are being healed, that we are being made whole. And if they want that too, we can help them find out how to get it. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.